Hello and welcome to the 109th episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they made their start making games, what their influences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focuses on the developer themselves, and in the second half we discuss the game they're here to promote, which in this case is Hyper Sentinel by Houston Consultants. Rob! Who are you? Yes. Who are you, sir, and what do you do? Well, hello, Chris. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, Very much appreciated. Uh, My name's Rob Hewson. Uh, I've been in games development for uh, 10, 11 years now, I'd say, since 2005, I think it it was, when I sort of went in full-time. And yes, I'm a game developer. Yes, an auspicious year. There's a word. Write that one down, everyone. But uh, 2005 was, was the... Just before, it all went a bit crazy. Um, you may disagree, but I think when Xbox Live Arcade started to go, here, look, here's some games that hasn't really gone through proper certification or vetting, but just have a go anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's, yes, that's, that's, that's a good point, actually, because, um, first of all, obviously, Xbox Live came in and digital games started to to take off. Not too much later, of course, what was it, 2007, the first iPhone, or am I getting yes, my date no, wrong? No, you're absolutely right. That's 2007. Right. So yeah. that kind of period was when suddenly digital started to become a thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think you're right. It was, um, it was a, a, a very interesting time because really, um, from, from my point of view, uh, I think there was kind of a, a dark period from the mid-90s until 2005, 2006, 2007, when really only big corporations with lots of money could 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 make games yeah um, and then you had and, three prongs didn't you, you had steam yeah like it or not it was steam xbox live and then ios and smartphones yeah. or smartphones basically exactly uh, and then like oh what's what's this we don't have control where are you going and all the pubs yeah. are doing this no please don't oh god and then all of a sudden now it's just it's chaos i was i was talking, chaos exactly talking to a friend about steam the other day like have you noticed every time you open up Steam, there's about 12 new games? Yes. Yeah. So you don't do that. There's 12 new games every 20 seconds. Yeah, that too. Please stop. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just I, I don't know. I can't. It's the, the, the curating of that is so tough. And we can talk about that later on the show. But the, the sheer sort of volume is too much. But yeah. that aside, how did you make your start making flashy, lighty video games? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I grew up uh, with the industry because um, my dad uh, founded Houston Consultants in 1980, I believe, uh, and I was born in 81. Um, so, uh, yeah, I grew up playing on the Commodore 64, which he'd very kindly brought home from work. And, of course, the only games I played, uh, really, most of them were, were Houston games, so Iridium, Paradroid, Gribbley's Day Out, and what Cybernoid. and terrible, terrible childhood you had. Yeah, it was, it was pretty yeah, awful. Pretty uh, you awful, know, I had yeah. To, you didn't have your I, shoes either, did you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I had a Spider-Man outfit, which I wore everywhere, I seem to remember. This is but, um, worse. This is, you're not making any friends. You know? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, it's, what, what a fantastic... Uh, just to settle on it. I know you've heard this so many times, but Houston, whenever I saw that icon or logo as a, as a kid when I was a teenager, because I am a thousand years old, um, I know as a teenager in the eighties, so that, that's like a mark of like that game's worthy of your attention. It really, really is. So yeah, well done to your dad. Yeah, I mean, I think um, he's he's heard that a lot lately because he we uh, has written this book 
um, about uh, his experiences in the industry over, over 20 years. And he, I don't think he realized that uh, there was such a sort of reputation for quality and innovation, not really until he wrote the book. And he kind of, in the books, is trying to figure out, well, why is it that we that, that happened? Because obviously, you know, you, you, that's what you would try to do. You would try to make the best games you possibly could. Um, and so he's trying to sort of... Them. That's the point. And then sell them, yeah. Well, they um, would sell by, the, by virtue of their quality. I mean, it, it's for some reason, a lot of... A lot of uh, media don't seem to comprehend this. You make good stuff, people buy the good stuff. If yeah, make, absolutely. If you make junk, people might buy a little, buy a little bit, then they realise it's junk, and then they won't buy it anymore. Yeah, you exactly, know. exactly. It's, um, <laughs> Why is it so hard? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, that was the other thing as well. I mean, games back then were ridiculously difficult compared to games today. Um, uh, well, but, then again, we've had yeah. thirty-five years of game development design. Yes, you know, I, mean, I do. I do balk at developers. Well, not developers. No, sorry, balk at people who say, "Oh, they're much better back then." I said, "No, no, don't do that. Don't do, don't do that. Don't don't take away all that innovation, all that development, all that uh, just embracing of the new and the understanding yeah. and and engaging with the player and treating the player with some respect. Thank Absolutely, you very much." And Absolutely. Like, you know, I cite a game called Kingdom, which is an extraordinary game. It looks like a an action adventure game. It turns out to be an RTS. It's weird, and it's just like it's and it's just it, it's beautiful, but it's very very young. It's just you know very about less than a year old. It's one of my favourite games of last year, and yet you know it's it takes a lot of um, games designs and aspects from the past, and then goes that was fun, but let's do this on top of it. Yeah, and that's why you know I know you do that too, and you've definitely done that with Hyper Sentinel. Absolutely, uh, you know, to take it like let's cut, there's some good parts, but what about this? Do you, mean, you know this innovation that now now exists in our in our in video game firmament? Isn't that awesome? So sorry, I interrupted you. You started off um, as a young lad being exposed to video games from 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 fetus level. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yes, um, and so. Uh, uh, and, and it was it was great. We got to go along to lots of the shows at Earl's Court and hand out those. Do you remember those spiral cardboard hats you used to get in the eighties? Uh, hand hand out those, and um, we got to go climb around in the warehouse looking for cassettes that we could. And I, you know, I asked Dad if we could take them home. Um, so it, it it was it was it was brilliant. I don't think I realised at the time, obviously, quite how how great it was. But um, um, I just always wanted to be a game designer and well there was a period when i wanted to be a formula one driver and there's a period where i wanted to be a chef and i had to design my own restaurants i couldn't just be a chef i had to actually design the restaurant as well it's very bizarre but no i always wanted to be a game designer um and that was the one thing that sort of stuck stuck with me um and so um uh yeah i mean i i was fortunate enough to do a, a summer job when i was a bit older at 21st century entertainment which was what houston sort of uh transitioned into and they did pinball dreams and pinball fantasies Ooh, um, on to make battle zone of all battlefield well dice yeah, dice digital dice illusions did, yeah, yeah digital illusions yeah. which was uh, became dice became which i think is because it's digital illusions creative entertainment yes. is where the abbreviation comes from isn't it they, yeah, um, so yeah they went on to battlefield to shooting people in the face i can see the yes. similarity <laughs> yes and um again it's 
you find out now having done this book, you find out all the stories which you didn't realize at the time, which is uh, the the four guys, four or five of them, I think they were from Digital Illusions when they first got their first game published by 21st Century, which was Pinball Dreams. And they um, they made that sort of as students and they came to London and they had to sort of sneak into the, the show in London um, at Olympia, uh, you know, barter with a security guard and sneak in in order to show the game. So, um, you know, there you go. That's how these things start yeah, off. ECTS was a thing, wasn't it? Yeah, that, uh, that's right. It was extremely close shop to the point where it's not impossible to get in Unless you had X amount of credentials, credentials, and we all know the story about. I didn't know that story. I do. I do know the story of how Worms came to be. Yeah, a chap walks into Team Seventeen and says, "Here's this game I've ripped off from a game called Scorched Earth." No one talks about that bit, and I've repurposed it with Worms, and with you know, re re reskinned it with some Worms. Could, could please hire me? <laughs> and, right. Well, there you go. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's basically what happened. No one talks about the Scorched Earth thing. Uh, look it up, everyone. Uh, yeah, Worms was directly drawn from Scorched Earth. Um, uh-huh. But um, yeah, it's it's. Um, but uh, I didn't know. Yes, Dice sort of stumbled into ECTS, and uh, and, and history was history was made because those games were stunning. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, absolutely brilliant. I remember uh, getting uh, one weekend. I think uh, Barry Simpson, who was the producer at Twenty First Century Entertainment on Pinball Dreams, had set the the high score on the steel wheel table um, that nobody could beat. And me and my sister spent the entire weekend trying to beat that score. And, of course, when we finally did, came screaming downstairs. And uh, my dad um, sort of... uh, I'm not, I'm not sure if he encouraged me or if it was the other way around, but I got to write a cheeky note to Barry. You know, I would have been about 11 at the time, I suppose. Uh, I got to write a cheeky note mocking Barry, which Dad took into work and pinned up on his wall. And then, of course, a couple of weeks later, I was with my mum in Tesco's and we we bumped into Barry and he uh, just just uh, slightly turned around and said he'd basically doubled my score. So it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty... Uh, that, was, that, was, that was a low point, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, eleven-year-old boy beats like grown man. Like, yeah, well, hand, yeah. hat to eye coordination. That's what I say. Yes, absolutely. Because those, those, the, the physics of the ball was pretty close, but not quite there. It's got to be said. And sometimes yeah. you could exploit that. Uh, and uh, I certainly did when I played it on my Amiga. I used to, yeah. I used to dish my time between those games, all those pool that, that game is the relative, and the Wing Commander. <laughs> Cause it, oh right, cause yeah. It does come out more or less at the same time, and yeah, uh, yeah uh, um, and it also come out in, in the, on the snares. I didn't know that. I mean, well, right, yes, uh, there was a snares. It was ported yeah. all over the shop. I oh, think it was, um, um, yeah, it was on the snares. Uh, there was a Game Boy version of Pinball Dreams at some point. Um, wow. Jaguar Amiga CD thirty two. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all over the place. All over the place. That, 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 so okay, so moving on. Yeah, so I, I, I took a, I had a summer job at Twenty First Century when I was about sixteen, which was basically opening the mail, making cups of coffee, and I did get to write reports um, about games that developers had submitted, hoping to get a publishing deal. And because you know, I got to sort of get involved in writing up those reports. So that was my first kind of dipping my toe into actually being involved, I suppose. Um, and then uh, I guess I went off to university later in Manchester, where I s- still live now. What did you um, read? Uh, computing science okay. at UMIST, which is now part of Manchester University. Right. Um, 
and uh, after the, after graduating from from UMIST, um, uh, I got into web development initially. Um, Dad had actually moved across more into the web development side of things um, with Rod Swift, who um, was uh, also from uh, from the games industry. So, is this uh, the early two thousands? I'm just trying to get. Yeah, this is uh, this would be. I graduated in 2003, so I worked for a couple of years, 2004 to two, yeah, from 2003 to 2005. I worked in web development. So this is not really Java, is it? Cascade style sheets and stuff like that, or I did uh, I did PHP, uh, JavaScript, and yeah, that kind of stuff. I, yeah, that was really yeah. embryonic back then, wasn't it? But uh, yes, yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah, writing in table structures and uh, all these WordPress things. What the hell is this? Why does every, every website look the same? Oh, yeah. right, thanks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yes, yeah, so, uh, and then I got my first proper, oh, well, I, no, I missed, I missed a bit out. I forgot, I did some testing. So between 21st Century Entertainment and Dad starting his web company, which was called HS Technologies, he went and worked on the board of directors for a company called Online PLC, which were making games as well. And they did a football uh, management simulation called Giant Killers. And I got to do some QA for that uh, just from home, just some sort of freelance Q- QA. And I, I always forget that bit. But, yeah, uh, it was a couple of years in web development after university. And then I got my first job um, in, in games development uh, proper. Okay. And who was that with? That was with a company in Manchester called Blade Interactive. Um, Blade were they their their sort of bread and butter was doing the world snooker championship games um so uh i remember i remember coming in for my interview and um it, it just all happened by chance i was actually about to get i I'd, I'd actually um been offered and had accepted another job in a, another web development company when a friend of mine pointed out that this interview had come up so <laughs> And uh, it was only at the last minute that I managed to do it. And I think if I hadn't, if I hadn't done that at that point, I might not have actually got into the games industry properly because it was, you know, it was beginning to become a bit of a pipe dream, and the web development thing was was carrying on. So it was a bit of luck. Um, but I got the interview, um, got offered the job pretty much straight away. Um, I was going to go there as a programmer um, initially. That was the idea, but I started off doing a bit of. QA. Um, I did a bit of QA on a game called Hustle Kings, which was a pool game on the PSP. It's the first thing I did when I arrived. And then I started uh, working in some Havoc physics files for the car handling for a game called Pocket Races, which was eventually published by Konami for PSP. Um, and then, the w- then. <laughs> yes, when they made games. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Everyone hates them. We can't use the F word. Well, we can, but we won't. But we won't, yes. we won't, I'm sure you know what's going on there. Like, you're not living in a bubble. Like, yeah, that yeah. happened. Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> happened. Yeah. But yeah, no, back when Konami made games, yeah. yeah. Uh, I remember the, the Konami guys coming in for, for meetings when we got that publishing deal for Pocket Races. Okay. Um, and then uh, it was World Snooker Championship with um sega were publishing it by this time i think uh before i'd arrived they were doing it with codemasters but it was sega at that time um and so that would have been world snooker championship 2006 although i think ended up coming out in 2007 because it was around the time that xbox 360 
and PS3 were coming out, and uh, as as often happens, uh, tr- the transition to new hardware throws up a bunch of problems, and things take longer than you than you hope. But at least um, that was the case there. So um, yeah, World Snooker Championship. But um, there was a point where. Uh, my direction changed because the idea had been that I was going to be a programmer. Um, You know, I was going to get myself up to speed. But I think um, there was... uh, Documentation always needs writing. Um, When you're putting in, submitting concepts to Sony or Microsoft or whatever, you need to write documents um, to get concept approval, first of all, for the game to go on the console and so on and so forth. And for whatever reason, I ended up writing some of those documents. I, I, was, I was always quite quite good at writing, I think. And so um, I ended up writing a lot of those documents. And so inevitably, I ended up um, starting to put, a, you know, put, put in or, or discuss or talk about uh, design aspects that were going into those documents. Um, and I remember speaking to my boss and him just saying, well, what are you going to do? You're going to be a programmer or designer? And I just sort of didn't even really need to think for very for, for two seconds i said designer um and i ended up going down that path instead interesting yeah it's a uh, programming is a very hard um uh, sort of, uh, course to follow um but um it's great that you had that 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 branching option and here you are standing almost like which which lane do i take on outrun do I go yeah well <laughs> to be honest with you i think i think yeah exactly <laughs> Uh, I've worked with enough um, incredibly talented programmers since to know that um, if I'd gone down the programming route, I would have been a, a mediocre programmer at best. Um, I, you know, it, it, I've, there's a lot of really, really smart people that are programmers. And, uh, yeah, perhaps I'm not one of them. Yeah, uh, I, I, I went so. to an event last weekend, a retro revival sort of weekend, and they had uh, Steve Turner uh, doing an, an interview. And he was telling us yes. how he he used to write assembly by hand. Yes, he did. On a piece of paper. And he yes, he did. And he thought this was normal. <laughs> yes. And he talks about it as if it's like, well, doesn't everyone do this? And, I, and yeah. you come across yeah. that in a lot of programs, especially, you know, savants like that, who like, well, doesn't yeah. everyone? This is This is really... Mediocre stuff. This, this is not very interesting. They come across like this. Really, isn't this is this nothing? I'm only writing, you know, assembly. It's not really very interesting. Are you kidding? Yeah. yeah. No one did this. Only yeah. No, no, it, and how many times you tell him this, he won't believe you. <laughs> yes. It, it's it. I talked to Steve Turner a lot actually right. because um, uh, we got in touch for for the book, which I I, I keep. I, you see, I keep sneaking in yeah, plugs for the nice. book. It's great, I isn't like it? it? Yes. There you go. He's got my PR hat on. Yeah. Um, no, uh, we, I, we got in touch with uh, Steve Turner for the book because we had a, a, a bunch of um, retro gaming icons contributing their thoughts, yeah. you know, so the developers could put their um, side of the story in. Um, and so, and Steve was brilliant and fantastic and, you know, really helped with that. And I've just got into the habit of uh, phoning him up uh, now and again, you know, uh, seeing how he's doing, seeing what he's up to, mm. telling him what I'm up to, because he's um, he's sort of uh, making a game again. He um, for some time, and then he's come back because you know he gave this yes. talk, and he was saying how he was really battered by publishers. Uh, no offense, yeah. to himself or, but they were terrible. Um, what they yes. did, just absolute yes. sharks. Um, yeah, because they knew the only way that these games that they're making could be ever see the light of day 
It was through them, so they exploited that to the nth degree. Well, and that's the, that's what I mean by the ten-year kind of dark period yeah. between the mid '90s and the mid 2000s, when that exactly what you're talking about happened, yeah. and the independent developers that were there up until the mid '90s could no longer operate in that way. But it came back, yeah. uh, you know, with digital distribution today. Although, as you say, it is very, um, a very much more crowded market. Uh, come back with a vengeance. And then some. Yes. It's swinging a great yes. dirty hammer that's on fire. Exactly. Uh, and uh, I don't think any of the publishers sort of saw this coming to the point where some, I mean, I know Activision and EA and Ubisoft are going, maybe we should make some of these games like this too. Because they have yeah, done it. Absolutely. They have done it. Um, and uh, some to greater success than others. But at least they've said, maybe we should, you know, be a bit more risky. But we don't do risk, I know, but apparently that's <laughs> what they want. But they, yeah, and I think. I think for some of the bigger publishers, um, it's a case of actually it's it's good PR, it's good marketing. Um, now we're not necessarily expecting to make loads of money off every indie game we do, but if we do, great. If we don't, you know, we, this is this this game stands out, and so it's it's good PR and it's good marketing. Um, I think for some of, for some of the bigger publishers, obviously the smaller publishers that are popping up all over the place now. Um, are making a very good um, success for themselves by uh, by by sort of supporting uh, independent games. So now you moved on. You, you went into game design. What happened then? Mm-hmm. So we're looking at the last sort of like eight nine years now, aren't we? Yeah. So uh, there was a game called Hydrophobia. Um, I think it was called uh, when the A4 design document landed in front of me. It was called Aquaphobia, but we changed it to Hydrophobia. Uh, this would have been in uh, oh, 2006, seven, and the game came out in 2010. So it was a four-year, good four-year project, um, and it went through lots and lots of um, uh, iterations and difficulties because it was very ambitious. Uh, it had this fluid dynamics uh, engine written by um, primarily by Hugh Lloyd, who was um, one of the tech- technical directors there, and he was a got a PhD in astrophysics, and it was. This, uh, this lovely fluid dynamics engine that let, let water flow around and carry things with it and that had all these incredible properties. Um, but it, 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 did, uh, it was very difficult to, to, to construct a game around that. Um, eventually, uh, it got published by Microsoft on XBLA uh, in around 2010. Um, and there are a number of other games I worked on in between, a number of snooker games. Um, obviously, there was... There was a pool game called Inferno Pool. Um, Hydrophobia came out, and then um, we did a few different versions of Hydrophobia. And then Pool, a game called Pool Nation, was the last one I worked uh, on at that company, which by now had changed its name to um, Dark Energy. Yes, we've had them on the show to talk about Pool Nation. Lovely, lovely group. Oh right, yes, yeah, excellent. Well, they're 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 doing um, that. Their Pool Nation now is with um, I think uh, Cherry Pop Games, which is some of the people from that company who've brought that over. And I saw them uh, down at Develop uh, a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. um, at one of the the uh, the parties yeah, after the event. Got and um, now, they have done fantastic. Their their game Pool Nation is, I, I believe, the first VR only game to get in the top ten on Steam. Yeah. Which is quite incredible, is quite incredible. and I've, we we've played it, had a play of it on on Vive, and it's 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 great fun. You can smash beer bottles with your snooker cue and <laughs> all sorts. Yeah, that game always had a sense of fun about it more than the game of snooker itself. Or the yes, but yeah, 
Well, I said to, I said to um, I said to them uh, before I uh, sort of left uh, the company that I thought Pool Nation was actually the best game that I'd, uh, that we'd worked on since when I was there. I mean, that was just the first version that came out on XBLA, which they've obviously done a huge amount with yeah, it since they then. Yeah, released on Xbox One, and that's when I interviewed them. So, yeah, good. good right. Yeah. Yep. So, and that brings so, us to uh, the yeah. current uh, state of affairs, where you you're bringing out uh, Hyper Sentinel. Well, it, uh, not quite, because uh, I left in 2011, oh, okay. and January 2012, I started at TTE Fusion, right. and I spent four years there as uh, lead designer and game director on six LEGO games. Wow. Um, so I did six of the handheld LEGO games. Just looking behind me, at uh, they, they're, they're, they're very good there. They give you like a, um, a, Lego, a Perspex LEGO brick as a trophy with the character from the game in it, and you get to stack them all up and see all the games you worked on. So, yeah, I got, got to do uh, six um, game, game director on six of the, the handheld uh, LEGO titles, which was brilliant fun. Yeah, they, they've done great, amazing things with those series of games. I remember when they first appeared, like, LEGO games aren't fun. Everyone knows that. But, oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, this isn't a LEGO game, isn't it? Not really, no. Has, has yes. nothing to do with Lego. I'm sure Lego have a lot to thank that company for. Oh, without a doubt, uh, without a doubt. I mean, um, I think um, I think Lego uh, Star Wars obviously was the first one, but I think it was the first time that Lego themselves had done um, a, an IP um, attached to their. Because you remember, Lego in the '80s, there was no. IP attached. No. It was just they made up Lego Spaceman and Lego this, that, We've and the other. Seen Lego the movie, you know, and we have the Spaceman, who's a brilliant character. Yes, he's sadly obsessed over one thing, but that's okay because we yeah. love him for it. And, we do. Uh, we do. He was just going on about spaceship and yep. needing to build one at yep. any cost. Yes, <laughs> any cost. and uh, that. The, <laughs> The Lego Movie video game was done at TT Fusion. I was I was on a different team at the time. I think I was on the Hobbit team, right. or uh, but um, yeah, we got that that uh, the 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 mu- the music from the movie was playing around uh, the studio oh God, for months and months. Yes, yeah, yeah. Everything <laughs> is awesome. Shut up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. One more time. Yeah. yeah, it's just just you know when you uh, when you're trying to submit. And suddenly a bug pops up, and you know you're pulling your hair out, and it's midnight. That's just when you need the that theme tune. It's awesome. No, it really isn't. It really freaking isn't. So anyway, <laughs> so okay, um, great. So what a, what a pedigree of, of of game developers there. But so you've struck out on your own then, almost. Yeah. So um, we were one of the winners um, of a grant from the UK Games Fund. Uh, in in their first round of funding, they were set up late last year, and we were one of the fortunate twenty four companies, I think, that got uh, a grant in their first round. Um, so that was uh, that was kind of a moment where, you know, I've got two choices here: either I can turn down uh, getting some uh, this grant to, to to go away and do this game, and stay at TT Fusion. Um, or I can go. Well, you only live once. Let's let's go for this, and uh, that's what I chose to do. Um, so yeah, here we are. Excellent, and it's very exciting, and it's great that you've brought us up to date. Because I now want to ask you, after all those years of creating things, what influences you? What drives you? What makes you? What was the thing you keep on orbiting 
whether you like it or not? <laughs> well, I think um, the thing about games is that uh, they're constantly reinventing themselves. I mean, I think um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'd like to be in creative mediums anyway. Whether you know, there was a, a time back. Uh, when I was at university, when we, we actually started a company doing filmmaking and, and, and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, but games, it's, it's different because the landscape is always shifting and always changing. There's, and there's always invention. There's always something new, you know, whether it's VR, uh, now or, or AR in a few years time, there's always something to get excited about. There's always new platforms. Um, and that, I don't think that happens as much in uh, other industries. Uh, it, it happens to an extent, but um, it, it's one of the things actually that <laughs> I'm going to plug the book again. This, isn't this great? <laughs> uh, it's one of the things that he, uh, that dad says at the beginning of the book, that technological innovation is what drives creativity. Um, you know, whether it's the invention of the printing press or the iPhone or the, the piano, uh, whatever, um, or the electric gu- guitar and synthesizer, uh, an amplifier sorry after something's invented then there's a blossoming of creativity when people figure out what to do with it but that's always constantly happening in the games industry there's always new platforms there's always vr around the corner there's always something to get excited about so it doesn't get dull um because there's there's new challenges there's new uh, there's new um there's new things to do and create yeah i think everyone's getting quite excited about what nintendo are up to next Yes. We commonly do topical stuff on this show, but I'm gonna this this time. You know, Nintendo NX and uh, it looking like a mobile stroke um, uh, platform versus a standard video game console platform. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people going, yeah, that's well, that's true. Really, we can't say this, but it's true. Anonymous source says. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's it's. Uh... <laughs> Very interesting. I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to the reveal. Yeah, um, I think it's going to be a Tokyo Game Show, which is a bit odd um, because they don't. Really, I didn't think that show was really the, what it once was, but apparently Nintendo think it is. So fair play to them. I thought Gamescom would be nice to do it there, but who knows? You know, Sony have done some stuff there, but um, yeah, we shall wait and see. It's all it's all very exciting. Uh, I know the new Xbox came out, for example, recently. I do find I it do, did. I do find it amusing that the connect has been basically its umbilical cord <laughs> has been severed and thrown into the trash yeah. and like what happened yeah. there? You said you couldn't use one without it. Um, what? What's yes. that giant owl? What? <laughs> yeah. Well, look at that. Like, you're not answering the question. Um, uh, my name's Stephen. What? No, please just, just yeah. answer. Why did you lie? No, we didn't. We were just um, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I, re- I remember being on the. We were on the Microsoft stand at E3 2010 with Hydrophobia, which was the year when it was the "You Are the Controller" uh, stand, and everyone playing Connect, and it was the future, and it was it was really exciting technology. Um, but um, yeah, it just didn't quite uh, just didn't quite work out. Yeah, one word, Milo. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um... Who do you most admire in the video game industry and why? It can be a company or... Oh, blimey. Oh, that's a really difficult one um, and because there's, cause there's lots of people. And I don't want to be boring and say uh, say a certain Nintendo designer because I'm sure that no, gets... Uh, a lot that... of answers, are, 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 are blunt one, and you can say this one if you like, and don't worry, but 
it, Blizzard gets a lot of props in this show. Right, okay. Um, for obvious reasons. Maybe not obvious, I don't know. You may have issues with them, but they seem to be very good at what they do, my humble opinion. Yeah. But, sir, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Any, any particular people, names you want to pluck out from the firmament? <laughs> um, I, I admire people like uh, Mike Bissell, who strike out on their own and make a success of it. He's been on the I... show as well. Yeah, and he and he comes across as a genuine down. I haven't met him, but he comes across as a genuine down to earth guy. So I, I admire people like that who you know who, who go off and do what they want to do and make a success of it. And um, I admire obviously because of the connection. I admire a lot of the people from the uh, from the eighties because they were people like Andrew Braybrook and Steve Turner, who as I, as I said, I get have the pleasure of talking to on the phone, and I just listen to what he's got to say and he he just he just uh, I say how's it going and then he starts talking for 20 minutes about all of the things that he's been working on and the shade, the problems he's been overcoming and how he's doing the code and the shader issue and that and, and I'm just absorbing all of it because as you said there's a man who 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 wrote uh, on paper in uh, in assembler and uh, and Which the I still think it's just like... <laughs> yeah and, and the genius the genius back then um, you couldn't be a designer without being a programmer. And today, a lot of companies, you know, will say they're design-led because you know that, that's the way it, it needs to be when you've got a big team. But back then, everything was tech-led. You had to be a developer, uh, and you you had uh, a programmer, and you had to um, you had to be able to figure out well, here are the constraints. Here's what I can do. Here's what I can't do, and then work a design around yeah. that. So people like Andrew Braybrook. And people like Steve Turner and people like that, um, and uh, you know the, the, the likes of David Braverman and all, all those guys. I admire those kinds of people because uh, I think um, there's a lot to be learned from the technical people. And actually, I still find today that talking to programmers and listening to the technical possibilities and, and what have you really is the place to go to inform good design Um, rather than just designers going off and going, this is what we're going to make. And then telling the programmers you get so much more if you go and talk to the technical people, I think. Yeah. It's, there is a requirement to be a polymath, which is a a word or adjective. I only recently, relatively recently encountered the idea. You have a a Renaissance person who can both have a extraordinary creative mind whilst having a very analytical one. Uh, yeah, uh, that's why the best games were made by those very rare, verified individuals. There were many Absolutely. extraordinary programmers who couldn't make a game for Toffee. <laughs> and yeah. unfortunately, or unfortunately, unfortunately, unfortunately their, their their works was unleashed, and uh, it didn't quite work out. And that's okay. Uh, but then again, on the other side, you had people with lots of ideas and concepts, but couldn't program. Uh, and yeah. meeting those two was hard at the beginning because you could you. You had yes. to have hard skills. It was demanded of you that you had to have those quote-unquote hard skills, whatever that means, uh, in, in yeah. order to code. But if, if your brain, if, you're, if you weren't that polymath, you didn't have that extraordinarily flexible brain, you couldn't do that. Um, exactly. Now, in a time when you have people like things like Game Maker and also, to a lesser extent, Unity and Unreal Engine, that's, that barrier of entry's dropped quite significantly. Um, yeah. Not so much the latter two engines. You still need to know C sharp, for example, with Unity. In my humble opinion, uh, you may disagree, yeah. but I think you need to be, need to know have a good grasp of both in order to get the most out of Unity, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think um, 
one of the things I think for designers is um, to make to get technical skills. You know, even if you're not going to, you know, you're not going to go down the programming route because you're going to be a designer. You need to. It's it's like you're saying if you're going to be. What did you say it was a polymath? Yeah. Well, there you go. Thank you. There, you new word to put in my vocabulary. But, I mean, what what you what you do, um, you know, when you when you don't have when the rest of us mere mortals don't have that ability, is you have to have a team where you're like a Venn diagram where there's a bit in the middle where designer and programmer overlap and can understand each other, um, and that's where the magic happens. And so, if as a designer you don't you don't have any kind of grasp of the technical side. And to an extent, if as a programmer, you don't kind of um, appreciate and, and, uh, the design side of things, then it, it can be more difficult. But uh, So I think that's, yeah, uh, it's the technical side of things is something that, um, you know, people on the design side should embrace yeah, as well. and they, they, they need to know what's possible and what's reasonable. Yeah. That's very important. Absolutely. It's reasonable to ask, you know, can we have the monitor suddenly jump from the table and flip over? Sorry. Yeah. No. Can't, can't do that. <laughs> no. Really? Can we just no? Seriously, please go away. Yeah. And, and and that's that kind of thing. So yes, they're not expecting you to write the next braid or the next journey. No. But we are expecting you to understand the concepts and the you know. Let me deal with the low level assembly stuff because believe it or not, there are developers that still do that sometimes. But yes. The drivers and stuff don't quite work. They go, well, let's just do this. Then. Where are you going? Down this rabbit hole. <laughs> Now, yeah. Um, so, last question. This is my favorite. What drives your motors? Also, is an event developer. Uh, what I'm asking is because this is a video, a video game podcast. I'm legally obliged to ask it. What are you playing right now? I am playing Lumo at the moment nice. on PS4, yes. um, and uh, I was I was playing a bit of Doom as well, okay. um, but uh, Lumo's taken over. So uh, so there yes, you go. Um, we've had uh, um, uh, the developers of that fine fine game on this show. Uh, it, it is. I love the uh, harking back to. Well, it's night law, isn't it? <laughs> let's, let's let's not beat around the bush. It is it is night law, only a much more playable form because night law yeah. was um, it was great looking, but when it started moving and lots of things were moving on the screen, uh, you weren't yeah. either, uh, and uh, well, you weren't so much, and it would stutter and groan because, quite frankly, the spectrum going, "What are you doing? I shouldn't be <laughs> doing this," and his yes. punishment for what are you trying to do? You know, so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. But I think I'm really, really enjoying it. It's really sucking me in. And I think um, the, one of the things that I'm most that impresses me most about it is it's more than the sum of its parts. Um, it's uh, you know some of it's got some lovely stuff in there. It's got some lovely effects, but individually, a lot of the things that are in it are quite quite simple. But it but it draws you in, and it's um, like I say, it's uh, more than the sum of its of its parts. For the rubber ducks, never ends. Yes, and I only just found out because um, I t- Stuart Gilray, who's the CEO of uh, uh, Just Add Water, who I think were involved in maybe the, the PS- well certainly the PS4 yes. port because their logos on it. So I tweeted that I was playing it last night to to, to him and to uh, to uh, Gareth um, as well, and uh, and then Jonathan Port, who's the Hyper Sentinel, um, the main Hyper Sentinel developer, 
uh, tweeted as well, how do you get the rubber ducks? And I was like, and he said, uh, he told me that Stuart Gilray came back and said how you do it. And I thought, ah, okay, great. Now I've got to go all the way back through because I was just ignoring them, assuming that I'd get some kind of power later on that would let me walk on water and get them or something. But I can't go into no spoilers. (laughs) No spoilers, but, I, but now I've got to wrestle tonight after this is finished when I go and play, play Lumo, I've got to wrestle between the decision of just ploughing on through the game or uh, go back and get all the rubber ducks now that I know Once how you do it. <laughs> 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 um, so, okay, well, it's a great answer and it's great that you're playing a game. It's been featured on this fine, fine show. Um, so, yes. So that's the end of the first half. See, it's quite... Excellent. Nice, isn't it? Uh, but uh, second half gets a little bit more tricky. It's a bit like you know levels of last you know boss monsters and stuff. So uh, let us uh, move on to the second half of the show, where indeed we talk in depth about Hyper Sentinel. So, Excellent. Rob, tell us, what is Hyper Sentinel? Hyper Sentinel is a retro-inspired shoot-em-up uh, developed by uh, a chap called Jonathan Port. Um, it's, uh, at the moment, 12 levels. It's got power-ups. It's got sort of big boss battles. You can boost and you can flip your ship back and forwards. And it's just uh, it's a shoot-em-up. It's a classic-style shoot-em-up. It is. It's top-down. The graphics um, are pixelated. They are not 16-bit or indeed 8-bit because no 8-bit or 16-bit computer can possibly throw around these sprites or these colours at the speed that we witness in Hyper Sentinel. Um, I keep on expressing this to people. Oh, it looks like a 16-bit game. No, it isn't. Why? Because it's not flickering like a flickery thing. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's exactly it. And actually, uh, Jonathan put it really well um, in, in, in the video we have where he says... Um, he wanted to make a game that feels like how you remember old shoot 'em ups playing, which is not the same as how they actually were. It's how they they're in your mind how they were. Again, going back to what I was saying earlier, it's just uh, uh, you, you can't talk, talk, throw away all the work and design and development and advancement over the last thirty years and say, oh, absolutely, the old days, like, go and play, you know, the originals of those games, and they'll come back and say that again. And they and they typically just shut up because it's it's you know uh, there's aspects of the game which leads one to my first question. Obviously, it's inspired by Iridium. Can't, can't be denied. It's definitely inspired by the original game uh, that Mr. Braybrook and uh, um, and others others developed um, for the C64 and other machines as well. Um, what aspects of that sort of genre that you know? top-down, lefty-righty shooters, I call them, uh, you've retained from those from that era, and why? Yeah, I mean, so there, there, are, there are some obvious influences in Hive Sentinel, but there are some not-so-obvious influences in there as well. Um, Jonathan also talks about Tornado Low Level. Um, he talks about Cybernaut in, in terms of the explosive effects. 
Um, there's a little nod to sort of things like Space Invaders in there with some of the enemies and what have you. Um, in terms of what's in terms of what's been kept uh, and what has, I think the the way that the ship flips back and forth um, across the level is obviously the first thing that's that's been retained from from Eurydium uh, and, and and other sort of similar games. Um, it, it means that rather than being something that progresses endlessly from left to right, it focuses you in on here's a level you've got to find all the bits and destroy on it, and it kind of keeps it nicely contained. And it's it's just it's cool. An arena, it's just you're in this arena. It's an arena exactly. That's yeah. That's a much better way of putting it. Um, and and just the flipping and changing direction is still just it just feels really cool and really slick. Um, so that's been retained. Um, I think. I mean, I think not not a huge amount of other things have been retained. You know, the, the core, that core element's there and hitting the ground targets on the destroyer is there and doing enough damage to the destroyer to, to sort of trigger the, the end um, state for the level. But um, I think what Jonathan's done, um, as, as you said, he's, he's not ignoring the progress we've made and we, he's layered on, uh, first of all, power-ups, um, and some really, really elegant control decisions. In fact, some of these uh, came in as we were going through, um, because we, we, we first saw Hyper Sentinel around Christmas time, um, and you know I sat down and wrote a big sort of 30-page document of feedback and suggestions for Jonathan to absorb, and he took all of that on board. And one of the things that through that sort of iterative process came up is adding a boost um, ability, uh, because it makes it a much faster and more dynamic game. And it still keeps it as a single button game if you're playing on control pad. Because if you tap the fire button, you fire. If you hold the fire button, you boost. Um, and so there's that nice trade-off between the two. But it means that you can kind of boost to escape from danger when, you, when your um, health level is low. Or you can boost to collect a power-up. Um, you know, all, all of these kinds of things. And you can learn to kind of swoop back and forth as well. Yes. Uh, one of the other great things that he added um, is a kind of deflector shield when you change direction and flip the ship. So just as you change direction to go from right to left or left to right, a sort of little um, circular shield pops up around your, your ship just for a second. But if it so happens that you're getting hit by a bullet or you're getting hit by an enemy at that point, that shield will kind of deflect that attack away. So it works as a kind of dodge that advanced players can use to kind of skillfully get out of those situations. And it's those kinds of things that add a lot of depth to the kind of core mechanics, this I think. Typical of a game from our contemporary, contemporary video game. Here's some depth that you weren't yeah. expecting. Here's some more. Exactly. Oh, look, it gets even worse. You've played Spelunky, <laughs> right? There you go. Oh God! Yeah, and that's basically what you know. That's that's what I try to explain to people. That, you know, these retro gaming fans. So I do encounter a lot. It's like, don't don't dismiss what's doing being done now. Don't stop it. You, you you're making yourself look yeah. silly. Um, you know, uh, yes, there are a lot of games that Me Too games are, are just like quite frankly boring uh, because they've been you know committee designed. We understand that, but you're just casting mm. aside all this other stuff. You know, and. Um, but no, it, 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 it reeks of that. And I just want to ask, again, uh, it's a design question, but I want to ask about the speed of Hypercentral. Mm. When I first played it, uh, I thought it was going to be a really intense, sort of um, crazy, like, I can't control this, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. 
It's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you can actually. It gives you the player. It's fair, and it gives the player time to consider what they're going to do next within reason. Yes. Why is it? Yeah. It's really sedate in that work in that way. I think I know the answer to this question, but I want you to tell me. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Jonathan wanted to make a, a more of a strategic shooter, not a bullet storm shooter, um, more of one where you can you can there's different tactics you can em- employ, um, and uh, and we and we we didn't want to make a game. It's a tough game, but it's not ludicrous tough in the kind of retro way, insta death. If you crank all the difficulty set- settings up. That that is there, but um, we wanted to make a game that um, you could kind of deploy different tactics. You've got that nice balance where you can escape from danger. Um, we didn't want it to be a bullet storm kind of experience. It, it's uh, uh, it, it it that's just um, it just felt like a, a more natural fit for the, for that kind of um, going back and forth across the level and then escaping and then coming back in and. You know that it that just felt like the natural way yeah, to go. Yeah, it's uh, it just uh, struck me like, wait a minute, this isn't as fast as I. Not a negative. It's like this is actually manageable. You know, you could have just yeah. cranked it up and gone at night billion miles an hour, and that's fine. Yeah. But it would just been a blur, wouldn't it? But of course, when you actually do the boost, you can kind of deploy that kind of hyper fast burst of speed at your, you know, as a choice. Um, and obviously you risk crashing into things and you can't shoot, but at the same time you can potentially escape and get a power-up and what have you. So it puts it more in the player's hand. How do you believe the game communicates to the player they have free realm to fly over the capital ship as much as they like? How does it communicate to the player that they have... Um, well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. I think... <laughs> I see what you mean about this yeah. half of the, the show... <laughs> Get a bit more difficult. I mean, I think the primary thing is the the little yellow arrows above those ground targets. You you shoot a few ground targets, you miss a few, you sweep past, and you think, well, my objective, as it says in the top right corner, is to get all those ground targets. So that must mean that I can go back and get them. Oh God, I can, because most people yes. in flight is lefty righty. Oh, this is lefty-righty shooting? Yeah. Okay, that's what I call them. Up and downy, or lefty-righty. Uh, like 1942, yes. that's an up and downy. A really, a really good one, yeah. <laughs> pointedly. Uh, but yeah. this is lefty-righty. It, but the problem is, it's not just lefty-righty, it's left and righty. That's what I call yes. these. These are left and righty. Uh, and a bit of exactly. a bit. Uh, yeah, yeah and, and, and I think that's important, because if, if, it, if you didn't kind of pick it up from the fact that you've missed some targets and you know that that's your objective... Then you'd, you you might have to wait until you've got all the way to the other end of the level, uh, and then you see, oh, there's an end. Uh, I need to turn around then, you know. And that would be you don't want the player to get to that point before they realise what's going on. You want players to pick up the game and to intuitively pick up on those cues. And I think some of the other things, the fact that the um, the way that some of the turrets rotate and what have you and track you and, and those kinds of things help to add into it. And the fact that you shoot stuff. And then a power up appears behind you. Yeah. For example, so the, you, you you destroy ground targets, and the power ups kind of. Um, uh, there, there was a point in development where the power ups spawned immediately when you shot the target, but we found that a lot of the time, 
uh, the player would shoot the target and then collect the power up without realizing that it, it was there. Um, and so we put a little delay on so that you shoot the target and then if it, if it, uh, if there's a, a power up to be spawned, it will spawn at half a second or whatever the, the value is afterwards. And, and so you immediately think, well, hang on a minute, that spawned behind me. How do I get that? Well, obviously I can go backwards. And then that then feeds into the boost as well, because you might kind of go past it and think, Oh, I want to get that and turn around and then hammer the boost. And then you collect the power up. So it all kind of adds into that nice, elegant sort of set of systems. Well, last question then. I know, sad, all good things come to an end. Um, is um, You've released, well, you, the, the, the first port of the game was on iOS, or is on iOS, uh, and it's done mm-hmm. uh, on tablets and phones. So how did you believe, do you believe you've avoided the fat finger syndrome of playing on it? Fat yeah, finger syndrome? This is where your finger takes over most of the screen and you can't see what's going on. Yeah, well... Uh, I think um, that it t- we we had quite a lot of iteration on controls because we wanted to make sure that as much as possible we could reduce, if not eliminate, the kind of sense that oh, I can't. This kind of game isn't isn't suited to touch controls. You can never get it perfect, but I mean, there's four control methods in there now to, for starters because different people have different preferences. Um, but I think the most important thing that we put in was having um, left, right on the fire buttons, um, and then having the directional movement on the on the uh, left thumb. Um, for me, my preference is to have the the joystick control in the bottom left, so that so that, like you say, my finger's not going all over the screen and block, blocking my view. Um, although you can choose that option if you prefer. And then, like I say, having the fire buttons on, on the bottom right um, and having the direction change on those fire buttons um, actually is a really nice solution for touch controls. Originally, we had joystick on the left and we had a fire button on the right and a flip button beside it. But, of course, that introduces a delay because your finger comes off the fire button, hits the flip button, and then has to go back to the fire button to keep firing in the direction you're now going. And that means that it slows, it slows down the action. But by having two buttons, both of which are fire and both of which are change direction, it means you can go tap the left one, change direction, and just keep tapping it to keep firing, and, and vice versa. Um, so um, yeah, I think, and I think the feedback we've had is that um, that's actually a really elegant uh, touch solution for for um, it, 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 it doesn't quite get to you know playing it with a controller pad, but I think it's. Um, I think it's a really good solution. Yeah, I mean, most of my experience with the game has been with the Apple TV because it's with the Nimbus controller, but that's very um, uh, a small niche of people. Uh, but uh, it is a glorious, glorious thing uh, to be able to do that. And yes, I would highly recommend it. Uh, but we have got um, we we got it greenlit yes. for Steam. Um, we've got approval for PlayStation 4, we've got approval for Xbox One, so we are looking to, to bring it to more platforms, If uh, you know, and we're working away in the background to uh, line things up for that. Because um, it deserves to be played more. Um, I've been having a great time with it. Uh, the beta, the demo that you released as part of the Kickstarter was, was, was uh, yeah, very illuminating. It drove me to contact you to say, look, we need to, we need to talk about this awesome game. So... Great, yeah, thank yeah. you. So, um, 
what what are the plans for the future of the game? Because it's, 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 it isn't out; it is in development. So, what are you going to do? So, um, we are we're, we're kind of weighing things up at the moment, um, following on from the the, the the Kickstarter, which didn't quite get, well no. didn't get funded, unfortunately. No. But we did have uh, fantastic feedback, um, and we got some great press, and we got the game greenlit, and what have you. We made it. We made a few. Um, we made a few mistakes, some of which couldn't be helped just because of where we were in development uh, with the Kickstarter. But um, be that as, it's may, as it may, we have had um, things opening up, people come from the industry coming to discuss it with us, going, it looks great, could we, we could do this, we could do that. So um, we're exploring those options um, at the moment. We're looking at, you know, can we get some private funding here? Can we work with this partner? Can we work with that partner? Um and we're, we're going to keep chipping away on development where we can in between, obviously, um, you know, between other commitments. But, um, yeah, we, we, we will find a route forward for the game. We're, we're getting really, uh, really fantastic feedback. So there's no doubt that it will come out. It's just a question of the route we take uh, and, and how quickly we can get it to all of those platforms for everybody. Yes, it's all a matter of time. Uh, and it's, uh, momentum has occurred with, you know, with it, it's going to appear in some form whether we like it or not which is a which is a really absolutely rob it's been fantastic having you on um you've been a great guest and uh we do wish you the very very best of luck with this and all the other projects you have in the future you're more than welcome to come back on to talk about other things when you are prepared to do so or able to do so um so yeah thanks very much thank you it's been an absolute pleasure and so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review and you can also, don't forget, listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there. You just look up the Sausage Factory and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes. And uh, if you want to email me, any feedback on the show, or actually you're a developer you listen to the show and want your game featured on it, please do email me at chris at spong.com. Also, don't forget to check out the Computer Game Show, which is the stablemate podcast, should we say, of spong.com. Bye!